When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. How you doing? I feel very distant from you, unfortunately. Yeah, well, we are... We are keeping our distance, and we're trying to figure out how to how to talk back and forth with each other. But uh, right now, we have a third person in joining us, and this is Nick Egan, a visual design artist. Uh, you've seen so many of his music videos, um, commercials. He's worked in film. He's worked album covers, 45s uh, with Oasis, Sonic Youth, Bob Dylan. In excess. In excess. Thank you. Call him now. Holly Minogue. Yes. So we're going to dig in, We're going to dig into all of this. So we want to uh, welcome Nick. Thank you for joining us. Hi there, Dave. Hi there, Holly. Pleasure to be on your show. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this is What Difference Does It Make, the podcast. So thank you, Nick. Let's get going. But just to sort of segue into what you're doing, I think it's fantastic what you're doing. And, and it really, what, what it does is when I first moved to LA in 1987, 88, the end of 87, beginning of 88, literally the stuff you're talking about in K-Rock in particular was all I listened to. You know, um, what I, and it was just before MTV really became, well, MTV was around, but when you're in the car, you couldn't obviously watch MTV, but all you'd listen to was K-Rock and all those bands and those specific bands um, like um, Stan Ridgeway and, and, um, and Oingo Boingo and... and um, and uh, what's the what's the um, other band that I mentioned in my um, drama rama? You yeah. know, um, I would never have heard of those bands if I'd been in England or even in New York. You know, I think those bands were very, very sort of LA centric, and um, and in particular with that radio station. Um, and so I, I I think what you're doing is great. So is is it primarily based around K rock? Is it just generally about the eighties? Yeah, well, that's where we. We grew up in LA, so that you know, as teens growing up, that that was a huge influence on our lives, and um, yeah, and just all the music. So it's it's kind of a starting point for us, and then we kind of, you know, that that kind of leads us to talking to people like you. Now, what's your favorite of the two of you? What, what would you say? And that's a tough thing to answer. <laughs> what would be your favorite all time song from that period? Favorite all time song. And it- yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dave's might be more obscure. Dave's, your might, Dave, your might, yours might be a little more obscure than mine. I'll tell you. Uh, uh, David's is. What, what would yours be then, Holly? Would you say? I, I was a huge Cure fan. Oh yeah. And so, just like heaven, like probably oh, yeah, the other girl growing up in LA, but and it's, one of my and it's funny because the Cure were much bigger here than they were in in England, even. And and same with um, Depeche Mode. They, they were massive on the West Coast, weren't they? Yeah, yeah that's, that's yep. another one of mine also. All, I mean, everything about them. Yeah, we kind of yeah. talked yes. about that before, how Depeche Mode is, is kind of viewed as an L.A. band. They, there, was, yeah. there, were, there were literally riots in the streets when they had a, uh, a record signing. Um, I think it was like, like in the early, early 90s, I think. Um, yeah. yeah, right at La, La Cienega and yeah. Beverly, the warehouse there. Oh, they yeah, shut down the streets for that. Yeah, they, the streets and, were shut and, <laughs> it's crazy. And, and you know, and, and of course they had that, which is now you can't imagine their first single was killing an arrow. And you can't Im- imagine how anyone would ever get away with that. Anymore. Oh, for the cure. That, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I know. For the cure, yeah. For the cure. Um, um, but yeah. And to push more funny enough, they were from where my sister lives in the South part of England in um, Sussex. So from that kind of neighborhood, but, but a lot of people in England thought they were American. So <laughs> it's funny, but I think LA were, were probably now your your taste then what would that be? What would that when when Holly says obscure, David? It's what would you say it's was, not obscure. <laughs> it's my all time favorite is REM. So I, I kind of and then right. I and then I go from there. Um, right. So bands, yeah. So but, bands. So really, you're talking bands more than songs, really. 
yeah for the most part yeah i mean i i do love the one hit wonders the the ones that um that and actually that's kind of what's been fun reviewing on k-rock is these songs that you kind of forgot about but uh but that's you know like once you hear them like oh yeah yeah yeah, i used to love this song whatever happened to this band and you know yeah so it's no i'm just saying it was just kind of, it's just a fun kind of exercise for holly and i to to go over the these songs that uh that we grew up with so no i didn't realize that when we met david in the, in the height of, of of youth uh soccer that you were such involved in music in the way you were it, yeah i i don't know how it happened but back in the linkedin day when you first go into linkedin and ask you know for all your contacts or whatever and maybe you were on that list or maybe when you signed up for linkedin you were on i was on your list and somehow like oh okay usually i i i tended to to uh to reject a lot of the people from AYSO but i'm sure i saw your resume and like oh I, he's got a maybe I'll, I'll i'll accept his invitation and then you know forgot about you and, and then you posted something on linkedin i can't remember what it was and then i had to look you up again like oh my god this guy's perfect for us we gotta we gotta bring him in for the podcast and so because you directed you directed most of our favorite music videos oh really oh that's good yeah that's that's um i just did an interview for um a duran duran fan website and and we talked about that and one of the funny things i thought about it from there from a fan's point of view is is i realized that fans see everything from a completely different point and and this doesn't relate to you guys because you're not these the fans i'm talking about i'm talking about your fans of music these are like obsessive fans of one group Mm. and 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 they you know they become so bogged down in their own dogma about it but they they asked me a question they said um you know, wasn't didn't you feel like when you were working with Duran Duran on the perfect day, the excitement of working with the original band members of Duran Duran? And I said, you know what? If if I was like that, I'd be a fan. But I'm a director, and I can't look at things in that same way as a fan does. But I can appreciate the way fans are with things. I look at those guys as just being guys I work with. Sometimes I step back and go, wow, that's pretty amazing. It's like like for example, recently. I just got back in touch with Ian Asbury from the Colt, mm. and, and 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 he lives in LA as well now. And he, um, that was one of my most popular album covers, the, the Sonic Temple album cover. And and as I get older, I, I I start to see that my place in music history is is kind of um, established. It, it it doesn't really help me in the present because all what people care about is the past. You know, and, 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 and I'm very proud of my past, but I also need to sort of survive into the future. I can't just live off the past. You know what I'm saying? Of course. Um, but, but yeah, so me, and music videos, from, from my point of view, were the greatest um, of all the art forms because what you're doing, you're putting music together with it, move, moving images. And, and when I was a kid, I used to listen to um, T-Rex on headphones and, and I'd close my eyes and I'd get all these images coming into my head. So... In a way, I, music videos took that away from the listener. They kind of because they're not really a, especially during the nineties, it's not really a song that doesn't have a video to it, and that it sort of impinges into your thought pattern. So you can't, you end up not being able to create your own images in the way you used to be able to before music videos come along. If that makes sense to you, sure. But they were right. But they were a great promotional tool, especially when you were creating these these videos uh you know this is this is when the heyday of mtv it was like yeah. late 80s early 90s um it was essential it was something that that needed to be done it was because a lot of people yeah. who didn't live in la new york london you know they they right. had no yeah. access to hearing this music and and you know they they had these videos for it for it well you know the funny thing was in the beginning and i was living in new york before i moved to la i was a snob because I think I thought that music videos were secondary to album covers because album covers to me had a relationship with album covers. It was a, it was this kind of like map of all the things you, it was like, like a, yeah, like a map to what went on around that particular album cover, whether it was like with Bowie and David Sanborn played sax on, 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 um, on, uh, on, um, uh, um, Aladdin Sane or, or whether it was, um, Billy Preston played on the Rolling Stones record. You, you kind of got to know all these other musicians because you went through the credits of these things. Mm-hmm. And um, so when I was at the peak of doing album covers, say for example, in Excess, I wanted to do a gatefold. Gatefold was the sort of a, 
was the was the sort of yeah you know, the, the the ultimate you could do. So you fold out with with um, full color and then an insert that was printed all over it. That to me was like a little kind of special thing that you have with an album cover. So music videos were different because you didn't get to look at them when you wanted to. You got to look at them when other people decided you could look at them. They weren't tangible. And, and whereas a record cover was something that you could hold. And I grew up, and I'm sure probably both of you to a degree, grew up in the fact where you would borrow other your friends' records and you would tape them or someone would say, listen to this album. That's how I got to discover the New York Dolls. My friend had bought a copy of the Dolls uh, too much too soon and um, it, because of the cover. And then we kind of got into the dolls and you kind of discover things without even knowing what the music was like through an album cover. So, so I was very against doing music videos in the beginning. And then I, I, I ended up doing um, um, Real Wild Child, the Iggy Pop video from Blah, 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 of which I did the album cover from Blah, Blah, Blah. And, and I came to LA and I ended up staying in LA after that. And I loved it. <laughs> I thought it was a fantastic um, medium to, to do um, and, and create this whole kind of story around around the song. So I, I kind of was converted into this sort of um, the, the culture of doing videos. However, I struggled in the beginning because I was so well known as an album cover designer. People didn't take me seriously as a music video director. And so I, I thought it made perfect sense, perfect sense that, that an album cover designer would do a video. Mm-hmm. Um, but the labels didn't get it. They, they, you know, record labels tend to be very sort of one-dimensional. They don't want to have too much. They want to know exactly what it is you do. They don't want to know what well, you do this, you do that, you do this. And do that, that, that kind of confusion. They wanted to keep it very, very specific. So I had to stop doing album covers and then focus on doing music videos. And it took me some time to do it. I mean, it's doing some really, really kind of like crappy bands. And then I got to work with, uh, I did Kylie Minogue. And this is the iron, irony of it all, was when I did Kylie Minogue, it was the opposite of everything I ended up doing eventually. She really let me do what I wanted to, wanted to do and, and really let me do something that was like a little bit more edgy for her. And I did um, Step Back in Time, which is kind of a 70s retro thing. And then that, that, that video, funny enough, led me to doing The Soup Dragons. Mm. And, and The Soup Dragons got nominated for Best Music Video, Best Alternative Video at the MTV Awards. And then I ended up doing a, um, yeah, becoming the alternative music video guy. So it was funny that Kylie Minogue really led into that, I think. So you can't really ever um, write. And now I'm, again, I'm probably like both of you, is I'm open to all kinds of music. And I, and I knew Kylie because of Michael from NXS. They were dating at the time. And, and so and she was a lovely person. And, and even though I knew that, to a certain degree, she wasn't credible in, in, in areas that I was working in. She was really generous to me in terms of what it was I wanted to do creatively. And that itself helped me go on to become a, a very sort of uh, high-profile um, music video director that ended up being responsible for breaking several bands, including Oasis and, and Alanis Morissette. So I thought there was, there was a sort of a weird irony involved in that. And and just to, just to back you up on that, when I, I was... Sonic Youth wanted me to do a video. <clears throat> and I went to New York to meet Thurston and Kim. And my executive producer at Satellite Film said to me, whatever you do, don't mention Kylie Minogue. Because, you know, they're this incredible indie band. So I go have a great meeting with Kim and Thurston. As I'm leaving, Thurston says to me, oh, by the way, we love that Kylie Minogue video. So I thought that was really funny that, that everyone tries to avoid Kylie. But she actually had more credibility with the band's than the actual labels and the production companies did. So, so yeah, yeah, that, that was really a, re- an interesting sort of viewpoint. Thurston is a huge Madonna fan. He had uh, oh yeah, yeah, the uh, Chaconi Youth was uh, was a band like a offshoot oh, that, that they his, did. That was his, yeah, they did Madonna yeah, and covers. That's, <laughs> and that's great. You know, and I think that you can't underestimate. I mean, I can tell you a story that works the opposite direction. Was I was. Um, I did a video for EMI in London for a group called Charles and Eddie. I didn't really want to do the video, but the commissioner at the label said, if you do Charles and Eddie for me, I need help. You can, you can do Radiohead or Blur. And so I said, okay. So I did this Charles and Eddie video. And actually those guys were great as well. They were very, very sweet. But it wasn't anything I was particularly wanted to put on my reel. And she, she set me up with a conversation with uh, Tom York. And I had this telephone conversation with him. We were talking and he was saying, 
Well, you know, people don't think we've got much. We're not very colourful. And I like your work because it's really colourful. And we want to inject some of that into it. And I, I said to him, oh, yeah. You know, I, I recently did a video with Bon Jovi. And I did do a video with Bon Jovi. And I, and I said, you know, he was very much into this smiley kind of happy thing. And I want him to be the opposite. And then the phone went completely dead. And he said, can you get Dilly back on the phone for me? Yeah. So I did. And then he, she, Dilly told me, the commissioner, oh, Tom said he can't work with anyone that's worked with Bon Jovi. So that was the end of that. And so I just thought, what an idiot, you know. That's ridiculous. He couldn't see, unlike Thurston, he couldn't see that, yeah, that, that there, was, there, was, there was room for everybody in this business, you know. <laughs> so that was an interesting story from that point of view. And I've never liked, I mean, I love that song already I had a song, but I could never, after that happened, I could never stand him after that and his seriousness. Wow. Which is, which is kind of sad, but that's what happened. You have a personal encounter and it colors everything. Yeah, I know. And then, so they get there and did it. There ended my, um, my Radiohead video career. <laughs> Turns out you just need them. No, no, exactly. Um, sad thing about that period and the period we're talking about. So really I was more known in the eighties for my record covers where I did the cult and psychedelic furs and, um, and in excess. And, um, and then I transitioned as I went into the nineties, I started to do more videos and I started to get nominated and, and for, for music videos. And there was a point where there was an article written on me in one of the trades and it called um, me his MTV Ness, which I thought was funny um, because I managed to, 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 I mean, I didn't personally ever think that I did this, but the videos I was making for Candlebox and um, Oasis really got their breaks because of the videos I, I'd done for them. And, um, and then so you reach this kind of plateau where you think, wow, this is great. This is like, it reminded me of what the 1930s must have been like in Hollywood, where it was like, mm. it was this new art form that was, it, it, it begun and then suddenly was blooming into this big thing. And, and you think it's never going to end. And then suddenly, bam, it crashes like, 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 a, like a, the stock market. Or like it, it went from being... Yeah, with the internet, you know, like every rock band, from, though they're, they start at the bottom, they slowly uh, plateau, and then it's suddenly they're not well, the, the hottest thing ever. So, I mean, it's there's well, a, yeah, and that was, and that's that was, yeah, that that was in terms of that. But I'm talking about the music video business in general. It went from, and it kind of coincided with two things. It coincided with MTV not playing so many videos and doing all those reality shows, and it coincided with the internet and youtube becoming popular yeah and so now so what i liked about k-rock and mtv was it was a unifying place it was a place that we could all go to there wasn't the confusion of the different variations of it so much um and mtv everybody had it on in their home so everybody had a sense of what was going on everyone could focus in that's the focus is all over the place but i but i i, I like that i like the fact there was that one thing that that was a yeah, it, it had a lot of power, and that power wasn't always used very well. And it made a lot of decisions that was based on on personal favoritism on things. But it certainly was a fantastic when it when it lasted. It, it was great, and it was great, really great to be part of that because um, you you had this great sense of you. You know, I got to choose the best music. I, you know, I had heard of Oasis, and I thought I'd like to do a video for them. And so I said to my People at satellite films, I like to do a video for Oasis. Boom, they went out and they got it. And there was that—that that doesn't happen quite as much anymore as it used to. And that may be because uh, you know I'm from a different generation, and and you have to eventually hand the, the torch over to somebody else. But I also realised the great thing from working in contemporary videos is that you can do. I do it all myself now. I edit, I shoot, I do the whole thing myself. That wouldn't have been possible 15 years ago. You need a big crew, and but the. Pro, there, and the problem is you don't need as much money, so you don't get as much money. You know, well, so the budgets were like two fifty. Now you, the budgets are anything between six and fifteen thousand for the kind of groups I do anyway. Yeah. Um, so, so there's, with the exception of Duran Duran, who I still work with them, and they have a relatively big budget, but that's still being cut back. But yeah, so so there is a great nostalgia to that period, not just from the fans, but also from the people that were part of it. And, and, you know, working with people like the cult and Richard Butler from Psychedelic Furs and Michael Hutchins from In Excess, you know, again, having a great 
creative relationship with them was was really a favorite piece of my life or career really it was was there when when you had these bands and you were part of seeing their involvement and and you know i i remember with an excess i had a specific thing with them was they had listen like thieves which is a great record and what you need which is a fantastic record when i heard it in new york because they had that rock but dance element to it and then i got involved with them and i and i thought you know they needed to be considered an an international band not a not a uh, an australian band because they had this kind of australian kind of um sort of uh, eccentricity to them. And, and I thought that they looked much more international. So I wanted to make that cover very, very international. They could have been from any city in the world. And it worked. And it was it was a brilliant album. But it but also worked on every level because of the, the way we approached the, the marketing of the record. And and, um, and that had its strengths back then. I don't know if it does so much anymore. Because as I said, a lot of bands have very, put out their own material, which is great. It doesn't seem a, a, a particular sense of focus on stuff. Um, bands tend to get their friends to do their videos, which is great in, to a degree, but they, they 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 don't have the quality or the or the sense of the, a lot of the videos that I see, especially from independent bands. You don't know what who they are. You don't seem to get who they are as people. Whereas the Cure, for example, and the Furs. You completely got who they were. You knew who Richard Butler was. You knew who Robert Smith was. You, you knew who the rest of them were, and that's kind of been lost a little bit with independent bands these days. You know, and they all end up to be homogenised and look a little bit the same. So, and there are obviously exceptions to that rule, but there was a real strength. And you know, like like we said, when you say the Cure, you have you immediately have in your head exactly what that band were and who they what what kind of they, they represented, and and that was. Um, a thing that I enjoyed that is, is making sure that people knew that this band was different from this band and this band was different from that band. And, and now I just think everybody seems to want to try and do the same thing. So, um, but that's, again, that's this movie. It's not me being this, yeah, overcritical. It's just, it's just that that's, it's a different generation, you know? Right. And, and, uh, and people have different attitudes to it. Um, okay. So let's, let's take a break right now. While we, uh, while we have the time, we're still talking with Nick Egan, special visual artist. These are great stories. You enjoying this, Holly? I am. I am. So let's hurry back. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Welcome back. Let's get back to it with Nick Egan. Well, let's go to the beginnings. We, you know, we've talked about how things used to be and how you know how you grew up. You know, getting associated with with bands or learning about bands. So you you were attending was it Watford College of the Arts and yeah. Design? 
Okay. Um, yeah, that's right. So what did let's let's get a look at uh, let's get a feel for what your dorm room looked like. Did you have posters up there, or what were what was look? Oh, oh, oh. Um, well, this is the funny thing was I'd just been to, just before I started Watford for the art school in 1976. I'd just been seeing David Bowie on on the Thin White Duke tour at Wembley, and I worked with my stepsister, and we had limited access tickets, which basically was I was right at the very back row, right by the side of the stage. So the only time I saw Bowie was when he stepped to the front of the stage. So for the most of the show, I didn't even see it. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I remember leaving and walking down the, the road and we almost got run over by a fleet of limousines. And one of them was David Bowie. There's must have been six or seven limos. And then a couple of days later, my friend, or I was about to go to Arsenal, I started Arsenal, said, oh, there's this band I've read about. They're called the Sex Pistols. They're playing at this club called Dingwalls. So we went, to go and try and see them, and the show had been cancelled. And then we found out they were doing a residency at a place called the 100 Club. So we went along to that, and I was it was a small little, it used to be a jazz club, the 100 Club, and I'm standing in there with him, and there was about I don't know, 50 people in there. And then suddenly the guy that was standing next to me got up on stage and started to sing, and I was so taken by that because it was a complete opposite of what happened with the Bowie show, where it was all very distant and yet it was nowhere in touching distance. These guys were just like me. And so we went every week to see this, see them play the residency. And then one of the days they had the class support them. And um, one of my friends at art school called McNorth was a drummer. And he had gone to an art school called Byam Shores with Paul Simonon. And he said to me, well, next time I see Paul, say hello to him. So I did. I saw Paul and then Paul said, Oh, you should do um, you should do one of our record covers, yeah. One day it was that, that simple. It w- really wasn't like, <laughs> oh, can we see your portfolio? Mm-hmm. Um, so Pete and I did the um, the White Man in Hammersmith Palais uh, single cover. It was the one that had the um, gun. It was we yeah. took the idea from um, yeah the Lichtensteins thing. We took the idea from the old Jamaican record studios, and Bernie Rose from the Clash was also was now. Ex- well, he was still managing the Clash, but he had a band called Dex's Midnight Runners, and he asked us if we would do the Dex's album cover. This is why we were still at art school. We hadn't even graduated from art school. Right. And we did the first Dex's cover, and um, and then when I was at EMI one day, because EMI on the EMI with Duran Duran, Bow Wow Wow, and um, Dex's Midnight Runners, I bumped into Malcolm McLaren, who was a friend of Bernie's. And me and Malcolm became friends, and he asked me to do the Bow Wow Wow Sea Jungle, Sea Jungle, Go Join Your Gang, yeah, album cover. Mm. Now, Bow Wow were also really popular in L.A. I mean, they, they, I came to L.A. The first time I ever came to L.A. was to work, didn't direct it, but worked on the video for I Want Candy, the one that's in the Venice Beach where they got their heads in the sand. Mm-hmm. Um, had a great time. You know, got my first tattoo done at the um, Sunset Tattoo Parlor opposite the Hyatt on, on Sunset Boulevard. The Riot House. The, the legendary, <laughs> yeah, the Hyatt House from legendary from Ned Zeppelin days. And, uh, um, and so I got to have this, you know, experience, you know, coming to LA and seeing how, you know, they were more popular in LA than they were in London. So I got to, and that album cover became a notorious cover because of the fact that Annabella was um, 14 and she was naked on the cover. But I think that that whole sexual side of it was nothing that we even considered we, we took it after after a masterpiece the Manet painting and we were looking at that and kind of comparing it to the morals of today the fact there was this naked girl and two men that were fully clothed we were asking questions of what the morals are but people looked at it in another way and then we had the um, police trying to arrest myself and Malcolm for having a minor naked in a public park and I had to fly to um Amsterdam on her 16th birthday to get to sign an affidavit to say that she had con- completely, you know, was was in support of this, and she, so so we dodged the bullet by that. And then the album cover became this great source of controversy. I wanted it to be just a picture with no letters on it mm-hmm. and no title on it. But the Americans, the Americans were the Americans. Though. The American, it, they were very. It was a very very super conservative. The record industry was super conservative. They were on RCA Records, which is the Elvis Presley, like Elvis Presley's label. And, and it was like, they really didn't want to do this thing, but they kind of, we convinced them into doing it. But we, they, everything had to be, the title of the 
and the name of the band always had to be on the top of the cover. And, and it was really, it was easier to persuade them to do the photograph than it was to get them not to have the type on it. So, so that's what, when I mean conservative, the, the picture almost didn't matter to them. It was all for, for racking. So, you know, you know what it's like, you guys, you know, when you used to go to tell, you used to go through the racks and, and look out for what the name of the band was because it was always on the top. So that was their, that was their big marketing concern. So, so that's how that started. Did you take the picture that. or were you the photographer for no, this? No, I was out there. So it was your okay, idea. Yeah, it, well, it was mine and Malcolm's idea. Mal- Malcolm had said he wanted to do a painting, and there was three paintings. I, there was one called Liberty Leads the People, and it's my favorite painting. That's the one I wanted. It's a picture of, of Liberty in the French Revolution. She's, she's got a, the French flag, and she's got one breast showing, and she's got this, and it'd be by the side of all these revolutionaries. And, and that, to me, had the impact of it. It was a woman. It was like it showed you know, strength that the woman was a strong one and, and, and you know, because we had Annabella, I figured it looked good because she had was this woman in this band, these three men in this band and that she was the leader. There was another one called The Bolt and it was a picture of a man trying to lock the door, obviously to have his way with this woman and she was trying to stop him from, from bolting the door. That's why it's called The Bolt. Mm-hmm. And then there was the one that Breakfast on the Grass or the Dejeuner sur l'herbe, which was the um, Manet painting. Yeah. And then we, Malcolm wanted the Manet, so we went with the Manet painting. So it was, and then we got a photographer and I art directed, even though I didn't really know what art directing was. I, I just left art school. And in fact, I hardly even really learned anything at art school. Um, so it was like directing. So you kind of set up a picture and you said, oh, can we do it this way? Can we do it that way? And, and so I art directed that, which was ironic because when it came to paying, the label didn't want to pay me because they said I hadn't done any graphics on the cover because it was just the original thing was just the photo and nothing else on it. So I thought that was kind of funny and ironic, <laughs> but they didn't want to pay me because they didn't think I did any work. <laughs> so um, we did that. That is actually you can see the photo shoot. It's on YouTube, believe it or not, um, and it, you can see me looking through the camera on it. And I think, wow, that is like a that is such a rarity. That's that's like a a, a rare because nowadays. You could see everyone would have a phone and everybody would, the makeup artists would have been shooting it. But this is when video just started, it's 1981. So this is just when videos had started. And Andy, oh, the cameraman, his assistant had got this gigantic, cumbersome, huge VCR, video recording thing. And he had filmed some of that. And so there's some of the footage on online. It was kind of remarkable, eh? Looking at it and looking at yourself when you were like, I guess I was 22 or something. Um, and then and then the band and how that photograph evolved. But that continued on to work with Malcolm and I worked with Malcolm on yeah, one of the great seminal 1980s records, which was Duck Rock, which had Buffalo Girls on it. And um, <laughs> you know, I got to go to the, you know, I was just talking about this the other day. I got, not only was I lucky enough to be part of the original punk movement, but I also got to be part of the original hip-hop m- movement in New York when it came to Manhattan because um, it had just moved into Manhattan and Malcolm had bumped into Africa Bambata and Africa Bambata told him about the, um, the this hip-hop movement that was going on and nobody even knew what hip-hop was there. Nobody in Manhattan, only people in South Bronx knew it. So when I did the, that rock cover, I got to work with Don D. White, who was a graffiti artist, Keith Herring, I got to spend five or six weeks just getting involved with the hip-hop movement. And really, I was thinking that Malcolm really did sort of embrace that culture and world culture because he went to South Africa and he did the stuff in South Africa. He went to, we went to Appalachia, the Appalachian Mountains, and did work with his uh, bluegrass hillbilly band, you know, that, that were in the 80s. And, and it was one of the first cool world albums that came out. And, and, and um, Buffalo Girls was probably the... The, the, the most sampled record, I think it is goes down as one of the most sampled records in music history, with everyone from Eminem to, to uh, Pharrell Williams being inspired by it. So that had a big influence on, on the multicultural side of things and how we start to look at world music globally more than, more than just in, insular, in an insular way. So, so that was um, probably the most exciting when I look back at it period of my life because we were going into territory never charted before and and then we went to fans and fans was the crossing over of classical opera music into sort of techno music or, or electronic music 
And nobody had done that at that point. And so we were doing this because Malcolm had that fashion line with Vivian Westwood and we were doing the music for the shows and the show, music for the shows were like a demo tape for the albums. So we crossed, there was um, Planet Rock, which was Africa Bombata, and then there was the Salsa Smurf, which is another one of these electronic hip-hop things which came from Bambata being influenced by Kraftwerk. And then we put this kind of stuff on, they had stuff on top of it. And that's how that came out as an album. So he was very clever. And in fact, he used this in this very hip fashion crowd in Paris and in London and saw what the reaction is and then made that into an album. So, so I have to say that was a very, very exciting period to be involved in music generally because it definitely was making the borders less uh, dogmatic. You, you, could, you could mix different. I mean, when you think about it, when you think about Malcolm doing Buffalo Girls, it was a square dance mixed with the current hip-hop scratching thing in New York. And I said to him once, but you couldn't, you couldn't have, I mean, you could be more different. And he said, no, if you think about it, if you think about, if you think about what um, square dance music, it's a call. It's, people, it's, it's a caller, not, not a singer, saying, take your partner by the hand and do he do your partner. And rap music is everybody in the house say, yeah, it was a call. And I just thought that was brilliant. I thought that was a brilliant, absolutely fantastic way of seeing the similarities that nobody else saw in it. That you could put, you could put square dancing with this hip urban music in New York. I thought it was genius that, that and, and, it, and, it, and, you know, and inspirational. And, and Malcolm was that inspiration because I was, at the time I was saying, I was getting bored with album covers because they were just a square. And what could you do with a square? You've done as much as you could do. And he said, well, don't imagine it's a square. Just imagine there's this big painting and you take a square of that painting. So you just take a part of it out. And he goes, that's interesting. That, that, that means people need to think more. And he said, and even if my name is not on it completely, that's part of the, of the story that people go, I wonder what that was like. And that's what I did. And if you look at that cover, you see that the, Malcolm McLaren goes around the back. And I thought that was a brilliantly inspirational thing to say to somebody creatively, to not look at it as a square, look at it as something bigger. And then you, you take a, a square thing, you draw around it, and you cut that out, and that's part of the bigger picture. And therefore, it kind of creates a mystery around it. So, so yeah, those, those, and I think Malcolm is really um, underappreciated for the things he actually did in, 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 in music. Even with Bow Wow Wow, bringing the Burundi rhythm, you know, and again, he wasn't completely, what he was, he was, he was like a catalyst for these groups, like he was with me. He'd throw this thing in there and go about the square and say, listen to this music from this place. And the band would go off and they would make it their own. He, he wasn't that person that micromanaged everything. He would toss an idea in and then bands would make it into their own, like he did with the Pistols and, and Johnny Rotten. And then later he did it with Bow Wow Wow and then he decided to do it by himself. So he definitely uh, is one of the greatest people from that period that you're talking about, you know, the, 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 the 80s in particular, moving into the 90s. So it was a very exciting period. And during that period, I got to work on videos. I got to work on the Buy What Candy video, not as a director, but as a creative liaison, as it was called. And Malcolm went with me with specific instructions. Okay, I want you to go to this video, but I don't want to see candy canes in it at all. And, of course, that's what's in it, because I didn't care about the video. I was having too much of a good time being in Los Angeles. It was like, to me, I was having a party. Videos didn't matter then. So I was like, oh, again, of course, the video comes back, and that's all it's got in it, because the guy that did it was some guy from the 1950s who had worked with Elvis, and he was their in-house kind of video guy. And he was this old guy. He was a nice guy, but he was like, it was full of cliches and everything like that. But to me, I thought, I'm just going to have a good time. I don't care about the video. And I did have a good time. But now I look back and I go, oh, God, I really, did, I, I really didn't really pay attention to this very much. But it's where I got my beginnings of, of understanding what music videos were like. But it took a little bit of, of time before I got into actually doing them myself and then realizing what you could do. And, and I looked at it in a point where I wasn't a film student. I didn't go to film school. I went to art school. So how can I make art move? And, 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 and so everything, that's why you've got scratches. And I, I love to use mistakes on my videos. We, we, would, we would put the film in bleach. We would take things to scratch it. We did everything you weren't supposed to do to film if you're a film student. But I was an art student, so I looked at it from a completely different matter. So basically, that's it in a nutshell. I went from being an art student when punk started in 1976 and going to the 
see the pistols and and realizing that this was a big moment in history because it was the beginning and the birth of the amateur, which yeah, up until that period was really dominated by virtuosos, people that went to the Royal College of Art, people went to music, and suddenly anyone could do it. And what it did was it unleashed a, an incredible wealth of talent that came out of that period that would never normally have ever had the chance to, to be involved. So that's what was great about punk. And then I think everybody's interpretation, even people like Boy George, who I knew back from back then, who became very, very sort of middle-of-the-road pop, safe pop music, he came from that energy, and, and, and he, it gave him the courage to go in drag, you know, where nobody else would go. I mean, yeah, having said that, the New York Dolls were great drag queens, you know, but he, he kind of predicted what was going to eventually become the norm. So, so I think that that was a great... I was lucky, let's just say this, I was lucky to be in the... A lot of it was to do with luck. I was in the right place at the right time. Um, and I happened to have an understanding of the art form enough to be able to get through on it and make it into a thing that I created for myself. So um, it so it happened pretty rapidly, you know. It, it went from from that. Oh, and then I, then I moved to New York because I wanted to get a different perspective on things. And I was always a big fan of them. I was born on the 4th of July. So it's kind of like I almost had this destiny that I had to come to America. My mother was a massive Hollywood fan. We had books on Hollywood. I knew Hollywood when I came here before I'd ever come here better than I knew some certain parts of London because I read these books. So um, I came to New York wanting to have a different attitude to things. And then that's how I got involved with Bob Dylan. You know, I got involved with Bob Dylan because Bob Dylan, who was cool and shrewd enough to see what Malcolm was doing and asked Malcolm if he would do a video for him. So Malcolm sent me along and to investigate. I met Bob and I, and I loved Bob. I, I, I loved Bob because I was never a Bob Dylan fan. So I, I wasn't intimidated by him. Like You mentioned the word Bob Dylan, even to the people up at CBS at the time. They were like in awe of Bob Dylan. I wasn't in awe of Bob Dylan because I wasn't a fan of his. And I said this because I did a recent thing for his website about the record covers. He, to me, more than anyone, is the original punk. And I look at that cover I did for Biograph, and he could be Johnny Thunders, Paddy Smith, or Mick Jones. In there. there could be any one of those in there. His attitude was very punk. He was very irreverent. He didn't give a shit about what the record label thought. He didn't give a shit about what most people thought. He was eccentric. And he did what he, what he wanted to do. And so my period of working with him through Empire Burlesque and then through Biograph and then onto doing his book, Listen to the, and, uh, um, to Draw and Blank was just, I could write a book about those times, the, the, the things I, I did with Dylan and, and how he was. Well, can you talk I, about I, the Biograph cover as yeah. long as I, I got you on that? I mean, there, you, you, you have his face. It, it it's all red. His whole his profile, or it's not yeah. the profile. It's his face, and it's all in red. Yeah. And then you have like these, uh, um, like Matisse. Yeah, yeah, Matisse. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, I mean, what what was it when you sent this to Dylan? Was he and he was he got it immediately, or what were you trying to well, convey in this? Well, well, okay. With Empire Burlesque, when Malcolm said he can do the video, and they were, I said, but I can do your record cover, and they said, great. So I did the record cover, Empire Burlesque. But I was given a photograph that was a really bad photograph. It looked like a bad publicity photograph. I couldn't really do a lot with it, but I made it into something. And at that particular point, I was really being inspired by Matisse because there'd been this big Matisse retrospective at the um, Museum of Modern Art. So I used a little bit of that in that cover. And then when Biograph came along, Dylan was really hands-on on that project. And he and I talked about it, and he told me some great stories, you know, so first of all, Biograph is is uh, like this was the first box set, like for yeah, retrospective yeah. of his career. So this was like yeah. this was uh, the a first one I'd ever encountered in the CD, like a, a box set. So this was kind of a yeah, the first it's of its kind. Yeah, and it was written by it was written by you know the journalist that went on to become a filmmaker who did um yeah almost famous um what was oh Cameron Crowe Cameron Crowe he wrote the sleeve notes to it yeah he wrote the sleeve, sleeve notes to it. And so with Biograph, Dylan wasn't that interested in it. It was just a bit of a thing, just get the album cover done. But he really liked it, and he liked the way I sort of looked at it and messed up the photograph. So Jeff Rosen, who was the – it was a friend, I love Jeff Rosen. He ran Dylan's um, publishing company called Devastia Entertainment, and he was actually really, more than anyone, Bob's right-hand man. And he called me and said, listen, Bob would really love you to do Biograph. It's his first retrospective. It's a big deal. 
would you come in and meet with Bobby? He wants to talk to you about it. So I went into their offices in New York, an Irvine place, and and um and sat with Bob, and we went out and had coffee, and he was telling me that um he thought it was a he found it novel and interesting that people looked so deeply into his work. And he said, for example, people would read all this stuff into positively on 4th Street. And he goes, you know what? I was in a coffee shop on 4th Street. That's where it came from. So I got these great insights to it. And then then I suddenly realized the epic nature of what was ahead of me. Here was a man with this incredible body of work. I mean, so how do you, how do you start? I mean, how do you start with all this stuff? And I had, I had access to all the, all the archives of photographs and everything. I went through these things. And then I just saw that picture and I just thought, my God, that represents, A, how I felt about Bob, Bob, like the godfather of punk. He looked great. His hair looked great. The way he was looking to the side, the collar up, all that kind of stuff. And being a punk, I thought, what a great, what a, yeah, there it is, yeah, what a great, what a great image to use. But I thought, I don't want to make it so it's just this retro and it's just, even though most of the songs were, were his old songs. So I wanted to put Bob in a more contemporary, I wanted people to think of Bob as being a more contemporary and relevant person. Like, you know, he's the guy that went to the Newport Folk Festival and went electric. And because everyone told him he couldn't do that, so he did it. And I thought uh, that was absolute <laughs> a punk attitude to do that. He didn't give a shit what people thought. He went electric when everyone told him he couldn't. So even though I realised I wasn't a fan, I, I, I started to realise I was a fan of, the, of who he was because right. of what he'd done. So I found this picture, and there were two things that were happening. There was the um, Matisse exhibition, and I always wanted – so I took those little curly – those little bits were from Matisse's jazz. He did a, an exhibition called Jazz, and it was like these these prints, and they were just shapes and forms. And then there was these artists out of England called Gilbert and George, and they were these, these gay couple who did these uh, stained glass window uh, – um, things of naked boy, naked men and, and, and just weird stuff, but, but like, like a, like a stained glass window and the red uh, was really powerful. So I, I laid that red. So I made it across between, you know, 1960s, uh, um, counterculture mixed with, um, the, um, yeah, the, the, the Matisse and then the Gilbert and George, because at the same time in 61, I think when Dylan's first record came out, it was also, even though it had been building since the 50s, the explosion of American pop art and, and, and Lichtenstein and Rauschenberg and Warhol. And I thought he, relate, he related to that music, I mean, that art scene, I think more than any other artist besides the Velvet Underground. I think he, he epitomised what that was coming out. So the marriage of the two of them seemed to make really good sense to me that Bob Dylan was pop artist in, in that sense. Um, so I put that together, but again, I was very conscious about it being just a retro album. So I took those two ghosted pictures, very ghosted faint, faint pictures of Dylan in different, in different periods, like in one was from the 70s, one was from the 80s, and really went through and thought that and realised that it didn't end there because I had to do the booklet and the back cover. And, and, and so I took the Rauschenberg idea for the booklet of Bob Dylan poster that was being peeled off the wall and, and and then used the picture of him in the frame, the sort of gold gold picture of him in the frame. And I went to the printers, and I, and I, I took that, that job. It was the biggest job I'd had in terms of an album cover, there's no doubt about that, because it wasn't just the front and back and the insert. It was the booklet. It was the record sleeves, the dust sleeves themselves, actually have lyrics on them. It was a massive undertaking. And um, I went to the um, printers, and I made sure that the printing was done well. And... It was a proud moment, and, and such a proud moment that I got a call from Jeff Rosen, who said, oh, I've got something. Bob, Bob has got something for you. And I went to the office, and it, it, it was a, the box that was given to me, and Bob had written on it, to Nick Egan, thanks for making this what it is. You're a star, Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a really, I mean, that was a, pr- that was a proud moment uh, for me and not being a Bob Dylan fan. And then the fact that the launch of it was in the um, – uh, one of the smaller ones, but it was in Manhattan. Can't remember. But anyway, <laughs> when I went into it, they had the all my artwork blown up to these gigantic sizes hanging on the wall of this museum. And and that, again, that was the thing of every artist wants to see their stuff mm. presented like that. And I remember Bob was there, and he and he kept himself in the back room, and he didn't want to go out and meet anybody. He was so antisocial. 
mean, the guy just didn't want, was not interested in shaking anyone's hands at all. But he, I went in to see him. So, so and then that was followed by the fact that right after that, I said um, I was applying for my green card, and I needed my lawyer said you need um, you need some signatures of people who are outstanding in their field of expertise. And so I said, oh, I should. Um, I'll ask Bob. And I, so I called <laughs> up Jeff and I said, oh man, Bob will sign my letter of immigration, support of immigration. And he said, to be honest, Nick, I doubt it. The last one he signed was for John Lennon, and he's never done it for anyone since. So I said, okay. A week later, I get a call from Jeff saying, Bob's done your letter for you. So he signed my immigration support. And, and I wish I, I, I think I lost the letter, but my lawyer drafted it. Basically, he just signed it. It was like, you know, I'm, I've been recognized as a, as a person in the 60s that created this and that. And, and, and I support Nick Egan's thing for a visa, signed Bob Dylan. Mm. But Wow. I was lucky. The same time I got John Hughes to sign mine because I'd done some stuff with John Hughes, the film director, and then Excess. So they couldn't exactly say no, could they, to me? <laughs> the immigration, they couldn't, they couldn't turn me down based on that one. Okay. I mean, come on. Man, it, these stories are amazing. And I'm so thrilled that we're going to continue this for next week. Next week, we start talking videos and all that uh, went on with his directing of Valadis Morissette and Oasis and so many more stories that we're going to get into. Please sign up for our newsletter at WDDIMpodcast.com. Thank you again to Nick for giving us his extremely valuable time. It's been a lot of fun. So we will continue next week. And until then, this is Dave. This is Ollie. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.